Chapter Two of Fifty Years Ago by Walter Bassant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gary Clayton. The year eighteen thirty seven. The year eighteen thirty seven, except for the death of the old king and the accession of the young queen, was a tolerably insignificant year. It was on June twentieth that the king died. He was buried on the evening of July 9th at St. George's Chapel, Windsor. On the 10th, the Queen dissolved Parliament. On the 13th, she went to Buckingham Palace. And on November 9, she visited the city, where they gave her a magnificent banquet, served in Guildhall at half-past five, the Lord Mayor and city magnates humbly taking their modest meal at a lower table. Both the hour appointed for the banquet and the humility of the Lord Mayor and Aldermen point to a remote period. The year began with the influenza. Everybody had it. The offices of the various departments of the civil service were deserted because all the clerks had influenza. Business of all kinds was stopped because merchants, clerks, bankers, and brokers all had influenza. At Woolwich, fifty men of the Royal Artillery and Engineers were taken into hospital daily with influenza. The epidemic seems to have broken out suddenly, and suddenly to have departed. Another important event of the year was the establishment of steam communication with India by way of the Red Sea. The Atalanta left Bombay on October 2, and arrived at Suez on October 16. The mails were brought into Alexandria on the 20th, and dispatched, such was the celerity of the authorities, on November 7 by HMS Volcano. They reached Malta on the 11th, Gibraltar on the 16th, and England on December 4, taking 60 days in all, of which, however, 18 days were wasted in Alexandria so that the possible time of transit from Bombay to England was proved to be 42 days. This was the year of the Greenacre murder. The wretched man was under promise to marry an elderly woman, thinking she had money. One night, while they were drinking together, she confessed that she had none and had deceived him, whereupon, seized with wrath, he took up whatever weapon lay to his hand, and smote her on the head so that she fell backwards dead. Now mark, if this man had gone straight to the nearest police office and confessed the crime of homicide, he would certainly have escaped hanging. But he was so horribly frightened at what had happened that he tried to hide the thing by cutting up the body and bestowing the fragments in various places, all of them the most likely to be discovered. There was another woman in the case, proved to have been in his confidence, and tried with him when all the pieces had been recovered and the murder was brought home to him. He was found guilty and hanged, and never was there a hanging more numerously or more fashionably attended. The principal performer, however, is said to have disappointed his audience by a pusillanimous shrinking from the gallows when he was brought out. The woman was sent to Australia, where, perhaps, she still survives. There was also this year an extremely scandalous action in the High Court of Justice. It was a libel case brought by Lord de Ross, 
and arose out of a gambling quarrel in which his lordship was accused of cheating at cards. It was said that, under pretense of a bad cough and asthma, he kept diving under the table and fishing up kings and aces, a thing which seems of elementary simplicity and capable of clear denial. His lordship, in fact, did deny it, stoutly and on oath, yet the witnesses as stoutly swore that he did do this thing, and the jury found that he did, whereupon his lordship retired to the continent and shortly afterwards died, S.P., without offspring to lament his errors. There was a terrible earthquake this year in the Holy Land. The town of Soft was laid in ruins, and more than 4,000 of the people were killed. There was a project against the life of Louis-Philippe by one champion, who was arrested. He was base enough to hang himself in prison so that no one ever knew if he had any accomplices. The news arrived also of a dreadful massacre in New Zealand. There was only one English settlement in the country. It was at a place called Makuta, in the North Island, where a Mr. Jones of Sydney had a flax establishment, consisting of 120 people, men, women, and children. They were attacked by a party of 800 natives and were all barbarously murdered. A fatal duel was fought on Hampstead Heath near the Spaniards' Tavern. The combatants were a Colonel Herring of the Polish Army and another Polish officer who was shot. The seconds carried him to the Middlesex Hospital where he died, and nothing more was said about it. The dangers of emigration were illustrated by the voyage of the good ship Diamond of Liverpool. She had on board a party of passengers emigrating to New York. In the good old sailing days, the passengers were expected to lay in their own provisions, the ship carrying water for them. Now the Diamond met with contrary winds, and was ninety days out, three times as long as was expected. The ship had no more than enough provisions for the crew, and when the passengers had exhausted their store, their sufferings were terrible. An embassy from the King of Madagascar arrived this year and was duly presented at court. I know not what business they transacted, but the fact has a certain interest for me because it was my privilege, about four and twenty years ago, to converse with one of the nobles who had formed part of that embassy, and who, after a quarter of a century, was going again on another mission to the court of St. James. He was, when I saw him, an elderly man, dark of skin, but being a hova, most intelligent and well informed. Also, being a hova, anxious to say the thing which would please his hearers. He recalled many incidents connected with the long journey round the Cape in a sailing vessel, the crowds and noise of London, the venerable appearance of King William, and his general kindness to the ambassadors. When he had told us all he could recollect, he asked us if we should like to hear him sing the song which had beguiled many weary hours of his voyage. We begged him to sing it, expecting to hear something national and fresh, something redolent of the Madagascar soil, a song sung in the streets of its capital, Antananarivo, perhaps with a breakdown or a walk-around. Alas! 
He neither danced a breakdown, nor did he walk around, nor did he sing us a national song at all. He only piped, in a thin, sweet tenor, and very correctly, that familiar hymn, Rock of Ages, to the familiar tune. I have never been able to believe that this nobleman, His Excellency, the Right Honorable the Lord Rainiferinga Larino, Knight of the Fifteen Honor, entitled to wear a lamba as highly striped as they are made, commonly reported to be a pagan, with several wives, really comforted his soul while at sea with this hymn. But he was with Christians, and this was a missionary's hymn which he had often heard, and it would doubtless please us to hear it sung. Thereupon he sang it, and a dead silence fell upon us. Behold, however, the reason why the record of this simple event, the arrival of the embassy from Madagascar, strikes a chord in the mind of one at least who reads it. There is little else to chronicle in the year. The University of Durham was founded. A truly brilliant success have they made of this learned foundation. And Sir Robert Peel was rector of Glasgow University. For the rest, boilers burst, coaches were upset, and many books of immense genius were produced, which now repose in the museum. Yet a year which marked the close of one period and the commencement of another. The steamship Atalanta carrying the bags to Suez. What does this mean? The massacre in New Zealand of the only white men on the island. What does this portend? The fatal duel at Hampstead. The noble lord convicted of cheating at cards. The emigrant ship ninety days out with no food for the passengers. What are these things but illustrations of a time that has now passed away? The passage from the 18th to the 19th century. For there are no longer any duels. Noble lords no longer gamble unless they are very young and foolish. Ships no longer take passengers without food for them. We have lessened the distance to India by three-fourths, measured by time. And the Maoris will rise no more, for their land is filled with the white man. In that year also, there were certain ceremonies observed which have now partly fallen into disuse. For instance, on Twelfth Day, it was the custom for confectioners to make in their windows a brave show of twelfth cakes. It was also the custom of the public to flatten their noses against the windows and to gaze upon the treasures displayed to view. It was, further, the custom, one of the good old annual customs, like beating the bounds, for the boys to pin together those who were thus engaged, by their coattails, shawls, skirts, sleeves, the ends of comforters, wrappers, and boas, and other outlying portions of raiment. When they discovered the trick, of course they only made pretense at being unconscious, by the rending, tearing, and destruction of their garments, they never failed to fall into ecstasies of pretended wrath to the joy of the children, who next year repeated the trick with the same success. I think there are no longer any twelfth cakes, and I am sure that the boys have forgotten that trick. On Twelfth Day, the Bishop of London made an offering in the Chapel Royal of St. James in commemoration of the wise men from the East. Is that offering made still? And if so, 
What does his lordship offer? And with what prayers, or hopes, or expectations is that offering made? At the commencement of Hillary term, the judges took breakfast with the Lord Chancellor, and afterwards drove in state to Westminster. On January 30, King Charles Day, the Lords went in procession to Westminster Abbey and the Commons to St. Margaret's, both houses to hear the service of commemoration. Where is that service now? On Easter Sunday, the royal family attended divine service at St. James and received the sacrament. On Easter Monday, the Lord Mayor, sheriffs, and aldermen went in state to Christ Church, formerly the Church of the Grey Friars, and heard service. In the evening, there was a great banquet with a ball. A fatiguing day for my Lord Mayor. Easter Monday was also the day of the Epping Hunt. Greenwich Fair was held on that and the following two days, and in Easter week the theaters played pieces for children. On the first Sunday in Easter, the Lord Mayor and Sheriffs went in state to St. Paul's and had a banquet afterwards. On May Day, the chimney sweeps had their annual holiday. On Ascension Day, they made a procession of parish functionaries and parochial schools and beat the bounds, and, to mark them well in the memory of all, they beat the charity children who attended the beetle, and they beat all the boys they caught on the way, and they banged against the boundaries all the strangers who passed within their reach. When it came to banging the strangers, they had a high old time. On the Queen's birthday, there was a splendid procession of stagecoaches from Piccadilly to the post office. Lastly, on September 3, Bartholomew Fair was opened by the Lord Mayor, and then followed what our modern papers are wont to call a carnival, but what the papers in 1837 called, without any regard to picturesque writing, a scene of unbridled profligacy, licentiousness, and drunkenness, with fighting both of fists and cudgels, pumping on pickpockets, robbery and cheating, noise and shouting, the braying of trumpets and the banging of drums. If you want to know what this ancient fair was like, go visit the Agricultural Hall at Christmas. They have the foolish din and noise of it, and if the people were drunk, and there were no police, and everybody was ready and most anxious to fight, and the pickpockets, thieves, bullies, and blackguards were doing what they pleased, you would have Bartholomew Fair complete. End of chapter 2